welcome to Allyship is a Verb, the LGBTQ plus podcast that explores and humanizes practicing allyship for the LGBTQ plus community and beyond. I'm the host, Chris Angel, and my pronouns are they, them. Each episode will either be a quick tip to practice allyship or a longer episode to pass the mic to someone else to help keep the conversation intersectional. So this time, let's pass the mic. Hey folks, I'm Shane Wally, and my pronouns are Z here and here's. Shane and I met back in 2009 at the Campus Pride LGBTQ Summer Leadership Academy. Campus Pride is a national nonprofit organization based in North Carolina for student leaders and campus groups working to create a safer college environment for LGBTQ students. Z was one of the facilitators, and since I was considering a career in social work, Shane became a role model for me. We've kept in touch all of these years, and I'm honored to be passing the mic to here today. Shane is a social justice educator, facilitator, and storyteller. Z created Daring Dialogues Consulting and is based in Austin, Texas. Her experience spans over 20 years educating on topics such as LGBTQIA community, dismantling white supremacy culture, and cultural humility. Shane graduated from the School of Social Work at the University of Texas at Austin and has been teaching there for 18 years this month. Z was also the education coordinator for the Gender and Sexuality Center on campus and even founded the LGBT student group for the School of Social Work program. Z has attended numerous conferences and has such a rich history, both personally and professionally. On this episode, we talk about topics such as changing terminology and some of that history, the pronoun wars, is it okay for allies to use the term queer, and more. Shane, you identify as genderqueer, queer, an elder, and white. Can you share what those identities mean to you? Yeah, I'm going to start with white first, because white is what is seen first, I think, most of the time when I walk into a space, right? And I am somebody who often talks about whiteness, and people are often surprised by that, right? So I think I have white skin. I'm a slightly tanner now because it's summer, but still very white. And for me, that means I come from a British Danish descent that I get to navigate the world without uh, having to think about a bunch of stuff that I get a bunch of goodies just because of the color of my skin and that it is on me to help dismantle the system that allows all of that to happen. I identify as queer in terms of my sexual orientation and that language has changed over time, right? So I, I came out as uh, and, and identifying as a lesbian in 19, around 1984. And as my gender identity became clear to me and my political sassiness uh, opened up, um, <laughs> I moved and started identifying as queer, both to take my gender identity out of my terminology around my sexual orientation and I've been identifying as queer since the early 2000s, so as an earlier adopter. (laughs) And at that time, I think identifying as queer also did kind of political significance, right? So I use that term with pride for those reasons and realize that 
not everybody in the community is a, is still an adopter of that term. It's still loaded for a lot of people. I I came out around my gender identity in 1994 when we didn't have any of this language, right? So I talked about being a person who lived in the gender gray. And then when I first turned the, heard the term gender queer, again, probably early 2000s, I was like, yes, there's a term because running around saying you live in the gender gray is awkward. <laughs> is that a green gray or a blue gray? Like what kind of gray is that? So I identified as gender queer. And I think as the language is ever evolving and non-binary uh, is being used more. I often now will say that I identify as gender queer and non-binary. And I still identify, right? Like when I was coming out, people who, who were not on a path to transition were fighting hard to be accepted by the transgender community, right? And to be seen as trans enough. Now we're in this time where the non-binary community is like, I hear a lot of people say, but I'm not trans. And I'm like, I spent the first like 15 years in this identity fighting to be part of the community. And now we're fighting not to be part of the community. So I also, I think because of that historical context, identified lightly as trans, just because I still kind of think of it as an umbrella for everybody who doesn't identify with what's on their birth certificate. And what does elder mean to you? So I think uh, often in the trans community, we have multiple years, right? Like we have our birth years and then we have our trans years, right? So in my birth years, I'm 60. I turned 60 in April. I'm almost an elder by any definition, right? And then I came out around my gender identity. I think if I do the math right, it's 27 years ago. And so I think of myself very much as in out for almost 37 years around my sexual orientation. So I've been in this community a long time and I've always been around my gender identity. I've always been out and I've always been outspoken and I've always been giving like classroom talks. And so, and now, you know, kind of different kinds of work and talks, but in 1995 to be talking about the difference between sex gender identity and gender expression wasn't something a lot of people were doing. So I feel like I've educated a lot of people and I've held space. I had the good fortune to meet Leslie Feinberg and Leslie Feinberg was a mirror for me on what was possible. And I've lived my life as a mirror for other people to know what is possible. So that's kind of where that elder status comes for me. I hold a lot. I have, I have lived a lot of the history. <laughs> yeah. Something that's been interesting about the LGBTQ plus community and what was rather rude awakening for myself was learning that we don't all agree on everything. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) And so to your point, you were speaking to how you have embraced the term queer, especially for yourself, and you explained why. I'm wondering, it's not strictly older generations who leaves a bad taste in their mouth, so to speak, right? There's younger people such as myself who've decided to to reclaim it, but you know we can still be pretty divided, and there's still a lot of discourse around it. I'm wondering what helped you to reclaim it and and embrace that as an identity. I don't ever think of it as being a struggle, maybe right? Like I think it was a pretty easy adoption for me, and then I think 
I read, I was kind of reading LGBTQ history that we don't get in, in textbooks, right, that I didn't learn in school. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a book where it actually talked about in the 1920s that queer was used as a term of endearment, especially within gay men in kind of metropolitan areas. And so thus the reclaiming, right? So it got stolen from us, right? And then if you think about in the 80s, that queer nation, right, was one of the activist organizations around HIV and AIDS. I think as I learned more of that history, it resonates with me kind of deeply in my bones. And so, yeah, it was that one wasn't a hard one. For those who are outside of the LGBTQ plus community practicing allyship, do you feel that there are times it's acceptable or okay for them to use the term queer? Like, is it okay for them to say queer community broadly? Or do you think that's something that only folks within the LGBTQ plus community should use? I think that if people are truly practicing allyship and maybe they know some of the history or they know that if somebody were to question them on why they're using it, that they can give a strong and informed answer, then I'm cool with straight people using it. Right. I think it's, uh, it should always be said with a smile, right. It should never be hollered out of a car or truck window. If it is said with love and is said with an awareness of the politics behind it. And that if you are a straight ally and you use it and somebody within the LGBTQIA plus communities were to question you on it, that you're able to hear and have that conversation. For me, for allyship, and I know we're going to head in this direction, but for me, one of the key core components is, is that if you are claiming to be an ally or to be an allyship that you have to be able to stay in hard conversation with members of the community, if you're doing things that aren't right or that people have questions about. Totally. And you and I, we're both from social work backgrounds. Uh, That's one of the ways that we bond and we both provide different types of training offerings. Something that's been a hot buzzword or phrase over the years has been this idea of teaching LGBTQ plus or LGBTQIA cultural competency. And on your website, daringdialogues.com, you mentioned beyond cultural competency, moving towards cultural humility and responsiveness. What are the differences and why is that the ideal over cultural competency? For me, cultural competency, has, like there's an assumed endpoint or there's an assumed checklist, right? Like, oh, I went to that, I went to that training that Chris Angel did on how to serve trans people well, and I know the ten top things I'm supposed to do. I am now culturally <laughs> competent, right? And in that very moment when we claim competency, we get our card revoked, like. Once we say we are competent, we are no longer, Mm -hmm. right? So there's that. Cultural competency also, I think, comes out of a kind of a medical model, right? That it's not a a super, for me, it's not a very humanized or social justice model. Now, it's interesting, cultural humility, I I wish I could say that I coined that, but I did not. (laughs) It also has come out of the medical community, I think, as they are kind of learning and in humanizing medicine. So 
for me, cultural humility means I'm not going to know. It means that I am going to make mistakes. And for me, the responsiveness piece is about recovery, right? Like I build trust with people when they make mistakes and it will recover with me well. The people I don't build trust with are the people who make mistakes and then deny, run away, (laughs) blame it on me, right? Like all of those pieces. And so for me, kind of the skills of, of humility and responsiveness are always having a learner's mind and then doing the work of repair. Absolutely. And to your point, part of allyship is recognizing that we make mistakes and that can be quite humbling. So with that in mind, is there a time that you wished you had done a better job of practicing allyship and what would you do differently now? No, I think it's interesting to, I always tell this story when I tell this story, I think it still comes with a fair amount of shame for me, even though it was long, long ago. So before I realized my gender identity, I lived in Ithaca, New York, and I was on the gay and lesbian, and that's what it was called, the gay and lesbian task force, because this Mm -hmm. was 1992. And it was just when the conversations were coming around about adding trans to the list, right? And the board brought it before a vote. And I voted no. I voted that it shouldn't be added, right? Mm. And now it is who I am. And if 2021 me, actually probably 1998 me, uh, would have given 1992 me quite a scolding. But I didn't know, right? Like I didn't have good information. I hadn't, the trans people that I knew didn't have the support they needed. And so they weren't their best people in some ways. And, and so I've had to kind of work on how to think about that decision, right? And how to kind of grant myself some grace and forgiveness. And I think the thing it's really done for me is be able to grant grace and forgiveness to others who just don't know. You don't know how to navigate things that you don't have information about. And so I try to also, I think that cultural humility piece works both ways, right? That I also have to grant the grace that I would like to receive. I think the other thing is when we talk about the LGBTQIA ever-growing alphabet, And I often say communities because, right, we're not one big community that gets together on Fridays to plan the revolution. If we did, we would have had world peace by now, right? Um, I think allyship also happens within communities, right? Like gay and lesbian folks need to be allies to trans and non-binary folks. And let's talk about biphobia and panphobia, right? So I think even within within communities, within communities of color, like within all communities, we have to have allyship within and like without. Um, and I don't think we talk about that enough. I think we think if we have an identity, then we're good to go within our own community. And, and I've seen that play out badly uh, a lot over the years. I agree. I think as part of this podcast is highlighting that that not only are we asking that the general public, those who are cisgender, heterosexual, et cetera, 
you know, not only here are some like concrete ways you can practice allyship toward us, but here's also ways we can be better and kinder to each other as well. Speaking of initialisms and acronyms, so you and I use a little bit of a of different acronym. Uh, well, initialism. I, I've been getting them confused lately. So I, I kind of recently learned that blew my mind that LGBTQ plus is an initialism. And then on the flip side, you have quilt bag and soji. Those are acronyms. Okay. So because you can say them as a word, right? So you've, I mean, I've, I've certainly watched this sort of unfold over the years. I do remember in Los Angeles having the Gay and Lesbian Center, right? And then it was a big deal when it turned into the LGBT Center. I also remember when we used to use GLBT. Correct. And I'm wondering, as you've seen all of these shifts over the years, I've, I've sort of flirted with the idea that I think GLBT to LGBT was to acknowledge feminism, Correct. And why are we always putting men in the front? You know, I never officially saw that anywhere, but it was just something that, you know, in community with folks discussing it, it, it was this idea. And so do you think we'll ever agree on either an acronym or an initialism as we try to help, you know, explain all of the different identities of the alphabet soup community? I, I don't. And, and this is, I think people often ask right in workshops or trainings, conversations, like, why do you keep building all of this language? <laughs> like, just stop, right? And I'm like, okay, I don't think we like to be boxed into labels. And I think we'd love to have language so we can speak about our experience. And I think we have infinite experiences. So we're going to build infinite language. So I, because I think the first time I was giving a, I was actually giving a workshop and somebody, when I worked uh, at UT and a student said, uh, Shane, what do you think about the word demisexual? And I said, tell me what it means. And I will tell you what I think. I hadn't heard it yet. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard the definition, I was like, oh my gosh, that is the experience of a lot of people. I think there are a lot of people who aren't interested in having sex with someone until they have a deep romantic connection. Like, I think that for a lot of us is part of our human experience. So it's like, does it need a word? Does it need a word? And I'm like, obviously it does need a word, right? And so now we have a shorthand for that experience. And so I think, have I ever seen an alphabet with a D in it? I have not, right? Um, so, and I have real mixed emotions about adding the plus as well, because it means like, I'm too lazy to add you on. So I'm just going to put a, a plus at the end. And yet there is power in saying like, this list is not exhaustive. I start hearing words like sexual and gender minorities. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I don't know how I feel about that. Or sexual and gender diverse, right? Like there's all of this work. So now I think we're trying to find phrases that encapsulate, right? Let's take a quick moment to expand for those of you who are new to all of this. Some of these terms come from academia or medical communities and aren't empowering. They're not coming from the community. 
that includes when we use terms like minority in gender and sexuality minorities, as an example. Hopefully for any of you out there who are wondering why the initialisms and acronyms keep evolving, that's why. We're attempting to find better ways to include everyone, which also has now become parallel with our flags, such as the progressive pride flag that includes the black and brown stripes and the trans colors, or most recently being now redesigned to also include the intersex flag symbol. I think part of identifying within this community and practicing allyship towards us means getting messy and and having to be okay with not having identities and terms neatly boxed, for examples. We're likely going to continue to see changes with the initialisms, acronyms, and flags, and terminology. And all of that is okay and valid. We'll be right back after this break. If you like nerding out on LGBTQ plus history and want to increase your chances of winning at trivia events, I have a bookmark set that's perfect for you. Honoring select events in the United States from 1924 through 2009, you'll learn beyond Stonewall. It's cleverly packaged in a slip with two different bookmarks meant to resemble the old school library checkout cards. Just enough information is given so you can do your own research to learn more, which is highly encouraged. It also makes a great gift for community members and allies alike, especially if you include it in a book. Check it out at the Gender Sexuality Info Shop. Go to gsi.gay and click on the store link. Thank you for listening. And now back to the learning. I think the other thing that happens and I hear it sometimes, is people say LGBTQ and how many ever letters they're going to add on as an identity. And I'm like, no, that's not my identity. My identity is that I'm queer and genderqueer. I am one or two of those letters. I am not an LGBT person, right? And so Mm. I often find myself saying all of the words out loud so people realize that that's not the word right? That there are identities and histories and struggle and beauty and pride associated with a work, you know, an identity that's encapsulated in each one of those letters. A way that I've explained it to folks sometimes is that it can change based on geography, like our neighbors to the north up in Canada also have two S for two spirit. And that's honoring indigenous communities. And we don't really have that here as that we acknowledge, right? right? And I've also seen places where they've put the T first. And to me, that's a political statement, right? It's like we are acknowledging that maybe this community needs more acknowledgement in, in how we work. And I think that can be mixed. And, you know, especially, again, coming from our social work backgrounds, we think of data and things like that, which can be flawed. But when people are engaging in certain actions or or behaviors, again, yeah, we kind of have to find a way to classify it. And that's why then we'll have, again, these these terms that didn't come from the community, but terms such as men who have sex with men to talk about a specific act, right? And so that when it comes to STIs and and things like that, like we know this is a thing we need to be mindful of, you know, how do we then 
advertise to these folks and, and spread awareness about what they need to do to have safer sex and things like that. Yeah, I guess, I, I don't know, do you have any other thoughts around that and, and just like how people decide which acronyms they're going to use or, or which initialisms or not? And I learned something new. I've never heard the word initialism. So thank you. I'm going to add that <laughs> into my things to things to chew on. You know, I think there's a parallel right now going on with DEI, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, right? Like on my website, I don't use the D word, right? Like I talk about inclusion, equity, and justice because diversity for me is a diversity without justice is is dangerous to those invited, right? So I think white supremacy culture likes standardization and things in tidy boxes, And I think if we're really going to talk about justice, then communities get to name themselves, talk about how they want to be talked about. I, the other thing I talk about is that respect, it comes up a lot for me with sir and ma'am, right? Like trying to get people not Mm. to sir and ma'am. I'm a white headed person that sometimes is read as male. So like sirring me is respect in Texas. And I talk to people about the fact that respect has to be thought about from the eye of the receiver, not from the eye of the giver, right? It's like, how does it land on me? Not how did you intend it, right? Like the impact is more important than the intention. Um, And so I think what the acronym looks like and how it changes and, you know, whether that's regionally or culturally like there's an organization in Austin that's uh, Algo, it's A-L-L-G-O dot org. And their original name was the Austin Latino Latina Gay Organization. That is not who they are, but they have chosen intentionally not to change their acronym. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they they have kept their ac- they've kept their alphabet. It's Algo. So maybe that's an acronym. Now I'm going <laughs> to have to think about this. Yes. Right. But their mission has changed, who they serve has changed, a little bit about what they do has changed, but they kept their their identity in terms of their language. There are other organizations, right? The National Task Force is now just the National Task Force, and they've taken like some of the language out. I think we get to be messy and that people need to be okay with that. I agree. Something that's been really interesting is that PFLAG... There's possibly quite a few folks who don't know this, but for those of you who may not be familiar with their work, PFLAG is a national nonprofit organization for LGBTQ plus people, their parents and families and allies. They have chapters and support groups all over the United States. They have a wonderful glossary of terms as well as guides, scholarships, and more. So if you haven't heard of them before, you should check them out at PFLAG.com. Org. Now back to the interview. Quite a few years ago, PFLAG went on this search for about two years to change their name to be more inclusive. They spent absurd amounts of money on this only to land on still using PFLAG. Mm-hmm. However, not using it as an initialism anymore. So historically, it was parents and friends of lesbians and gays, but now it's just PFLAG. And a huge reason why they kept the name but dropped the initialism was because the brand recognition was just worldwide. And so they didn't feel like they could make that change. And yet 
chapter to chapter of which there's over 400 um, at least. Some of them still have the old verbiage, you know, either on their websites or their signs and things like that. And so it's just, it's interesting. I remember that conversation and I have to say, I still will say out their old name and then I will add, and they have worked very hard to be trans inclusive because I think PFLAG is one of those organizations that went on quite a journey to be trans inclusive, right? Like that was Mm -hmm. not an overnight or easy journey for them. And I, I don't know about on national, but I know some of, lo- you know, some of our local chapters. And so there's also importance in the history, right? Like I say what Algo used to stand for in Austin and people are like, really? And I'm like, yes, because our histories matter and have meaning and talk about our journeys, right? Like I tell that story about voting no to include trans because it is important in my journey, right, to be who I am now. And so I think if we erase or pretend that names didn't used to mean something in the journey that people have been on, we're missing, then for me, it gives hope that individuals can change and grow because our own community organizations have had to change and grow. So why am I not going to give the same room to my neighbor or my friend or my coworker? that they all, or my parents, right, <laughs> that, they can, that they can also, you know, kind of change and grow and evolve. Yeah, and I, I have two different trains of thoughts going on, because first is the acknowledgement, and we never want to dead name anyone, right? So we right. wouldn't, if someone's trans, if they've changed their right. name, we would never bring that up. Right. We would never ask them what that was. There's right. very few legal reasons why we would need to ask someone for that kind of information. And it's very privileged information. So, so there's that. And the other thing I'm thinking of too, I'm going back to when you were talking about being, you know, conflicted about adding plus as the, as part of the initialism. And I don't know, I, I remember when trans had an asterisk and some people still use that. And then I remember some of the discourse was, well, there aren't other communities using symbols like that. So like, why are we doing it? I was in graduate school at the time, um, getting my master's in social work. And I just remember thinking, actually, this is kind of neat from a research standpoint, because it kind of fills in when you're searching terms. Because when you search trans with asterisks, you also get transgender, you get just all of the variants of it. And so part of me really embraced that. What what was like your hot take, so to speak, with that whole movement? It's interesting to hear that take, right? Like it, you can't, so one frame would be, it is a helpful shorthand. And now we just say trans and we don't even put the asterisk and we may forget that there are at least three I can instantaneously think of ways to, <laughs> ways to complete, two of mm-hmm. which are kind of okay and one we just don't use at all anymore. Right. Right. And so unless we're talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show. (laughs) Yeah. And and even then we might be careful. So, I mean, I think there's an evolution, which hopefully is always progress. And I also think it kept us sometimes from having harder conversations around the difference between somebody who was, and it's funny because transsexual, we actually don't use very much anymore unless we're talking about kind of medical model or diagnoses, right? Like that word in, in casual conversation doesn't, doesn't get used. And I think 
transascorus was kind of the beginning of the end for transsexual. Is it a shorthand that's helpful? Is it a shorthand that is a kind of form of laziness that we don't want to like speak out multisyllable words that actually have meaning for people? And I don't know, because again, it's not like we all got together and decided transatrix. And, you know, I think about the difference between, again, as somebody who came out right as the internet was like new. Um, Mm. And I was like on message boards. I was on a board and we would never use this term now, probably. I was on a board that was called Boy Chicks. And it was the only way that I had any community. So if you came up with a word, if you invented a word, there was no good way to get it everywhere, right? But with the internet, it's meant that as, you know, language and words evolve, you know, I think another story I would tell myself is like, I came up using the terms M to F and F to M, which we also Mm -hmm. don't use anymore, right? We talk about trans men and trans women. For those of you not familiar with F to M or M to F, it stands for female to male or male to female. I hadn't, I wasn't consciously aware that that change had happened. And I used the initials on Facebook and a young trans person was like, who didn't know me. was like, we don't use it, right? Like how terrible transphobic. And I was like, Mm. Hey, Hey. I've been out for 25 years and there's gener- there's also generational context, mm-hmm. right? So if somebody grew up strongly identifying as M to F, do we have the right to tell them they can't use that language for themselves anymore? And yeah. I believe we, we sh- shouldn't. It is their language, right? Now, am I going to, do I use that language anymore in trainings? I don't. In public, I don't. Like I have moved my language. I also know trans folks who really don't like trans men and trans women. Again, back to the cultural humility piece. Like we have to be nimble and we have to ask one, we have to get consent. Like, hey, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to tell me a little bit more about why you don't like the term trans man, right? Or can you look something up and read about the, you know, and kind of read and learn about the history? So I think, again, like our uh, desire for checklists and easy answers, you got to let go. We just, we have to let go of it. And this isn't just true in the LGBTQ community, right? This is true in most marginalized communities, right? Because oppressors give us our initial language right? Like homosexual was coined so somebody could research us. And then communities build language over time that is more resonant with us. You know, if you think about, I was just in a conversation with a friend of mine who's a wheelchair user, thinking about the difference between person first language around folks with disabilities and identity first language, right? And there's a switch with the younger population that they're using identity first language, Right. Mm-hmm. And yet I've been training social workers for a long time to use person first. It isn't just complicated, it's complex. And we have to be able to sit in that complexity. Absolutely. Speaking of complexity, I've known you for over a decade. Okay. And 
you know, I recall a point years ago, you were publicly thinking and considering dropping Z set pronouns Mm -hmm. and perhaps going to use they, them moving forward. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I don't know, as a friend, I just perceive this as like you being in a lot of pain around this and not really wanting to do this, but just trying to make sense of a way to have the world be a little bit easier for you. I mean, I, I look now and obviously you're using Z set pronouns, which brings me joy because I know that feels most authentic to you. Um, it's really important to you. So can you share more about that time and, and what led to that moment for you? Yeah. So, you know, I first heard Z here hears at a conference in probably 1995, right? So they're they're old. <laughs> Right. And for me, Z here, here's where at least the first kind of gender, we would have called it gender neutral, right? A hundred years ago. Um, and I knew people who were using them like on message boards, right? Like in community, people were using them. Um, and when I became the education coordinator for the Gender Sexuality Center at UT Austin, I decided if I couldn't use Z here, here's in that job, like I, I was never going to be able to do it. So I adopted Z here, here's and have been using them publicly um, since 2007. And in 2007, I actually found an article that said like from 2007 to 2009, somewhere in there that Z here, here's were the most popular gender non-binary pronouns, mm. which is funny now, right? Cause now, <laughs> and then for a hot minute, we tried to use, we call them Spivak, right? E-M air. We took the T-H off of they, them there. And that was a colossal fail. No one could do it. It lasted like five minutes. And then people started using they, them there. And I lovingly say they've won the pronoun wars, which make me a little sad. So every couple of years, I think I sit with myself and think about, you know, do I want to move to they, them, there? And I think at the time that I was doing that, I was changing jobs and I was moving into a job that was not an LGBT specific job. It was a mental, it was kind of bigger mental health work, macro mental health work. And I was like, okay, do I just want to make it a little easier on myself and on others and go to they, them, there? And I posted that on Facebook and then I never did it, but I never told Facebook, I think that I wasn't going to do it. (laughs) Because like Z here, here's, I use them for a couple of reasons. I use them because they're mine and they've been mine since 2007. I use them because they're the first pronouns I heard. I use them because I'm an elder and they hold historical context. And so when people ask me why I use them, I always tell that very long story of the history, right? Because I, I worry that elders are no longer with us, and I'm amazed I made it to 60, we're going to lose that history. So I use mm-hmm. the, you know, I partially use the pronoun. So when people ask, I can tell, I can tell that history. And yes, it was really painful because I, I felt like I was doing it for others and not for me. And when I sat with myself and realized that that was the motivation, I didn't do it. I'm glad you didn't either. Thanks. And I love that. Yeah. I, I love too that you sit, you sit with yourself and and you kind of check in just like a little temperature check, right? Like, is this resonating yeah. with me? Is this the language I still want to use for myself? Are these still the pronouns I want to use? I, that 
that feels really critical just to like one's self-awareness and, and journey. I mean, I do that around pronouns and I do that about testosterone. Mm. Like it took me a decade to have top surgery because I wondered what it meant about a, how I would be perceived B would it, would I cross a gender line right, that I didn't want to cross? And so I do the same thing every two to five years around whether I'm going to take testosterone or not. And so far the, you know, the answer for that has been no. And then I think about like, what would it mean to be like 65 and spend my truly elder years, right? Like retire um, on, test- right, on testosterone and get to have a little gray grizzled beard. Um, but I've got five years to make that decision. So I do, I think, you know, I think part of the like trans or non-binary experience is that we hopefully uh, sit and rest with ourselves to figure out what is authentic for us. What are we doing for us? What are we doing that we think is going to help us navigate the world, right? What is the expectation or pulls or pressures from the community, which I'm hoping are calming down, right? But when I first came out, and went to, I had the economic good fortune and was living on the East Coast where there were a couple of conferences of going to conferences. And, you know, everybody asked me when I was going to transition. And when I mm-hmm. said I wasn't, they were like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm happy here. Right. And I, I actually, I went to a conference in 2002. Somebody said to me, they're like, well, if people like you exist, then people aren't going to allow us to transition, right? Like if you deconstruct gender, then there won't be room for me. And I was like, no, I'm not trying to take anything away from anyone else. I'm just trying to make room for me. We should have, be able to have all of like this expansive gender. And I think, you know, 2021, we're at this place where gender is just so incredibly expansive and the young, the younger generation, this K through 12 generation the generation who's in K through 12, mm-hmm. they're blowing gender. Like they're just blowing gender up. And I think within another generation, I always joke that, you know, when we're born, we're given a gender rule book, but I think those rule books are going to look super different a generation from now than they looked for you and me. And even though hopefully ours looked a little different because I got That's the mad men gender notebook, which is a terrible gender notebook, right? Oof. <laughs> well, what's interesting, too, is there's an argument to be made that you did transition because, I mean, right. one way that I've framed transition as it relates to people who are transgender, for example, is that, you know, there's a social transition, there's medical, there's legal, you know, um, and those all mean different things. But what's most important is, again, coming back to how you identify mm-hmm. and which language resonates with you. So at times when people come out as LGBTQ+, alphabet soup, whichever initialism or acronym we want to use in this moment, they can field a lot of invasive questions from well-intentioned people. With that in mind, what's one question you wish people would stop asking you? Yeah, I'm trying to think. It's such an interesting... I think as somebody who is a facilitator, I professionally open myself up to be asked a lot of questions. I think the, mm-hmm. uh, do I really have to learn your pronouns? It's Ugh. like, yes, yes, right. It's like, yes, you, yes, you do. Right. 
I think especially because I use the here here's, which are, are particularly harder for folks, which is why they lost the pronoun wars. But I think the like people wanting a pass, if we're going back again to allyship, I think allyship is not asking for a pass on doing the work. And so the like, how long do I have to learn your pronouns or what is going to happen if I make a mistake with your pronouns or can't I just talk about you and never use pronouns? It's like, the answer is yes, you have the right to do all of that. And then you have the right to have me be grumpy with you. Right. Like I tell people, cause I've, I've heard, I've even heard people kind of train this and I'm like, no, uh, you know, the easy workaround is just to use people's name. And I'm like, if I am hearing myself being talked about and I only ever hear my name, mm-hmm. I know that you are avoiding using my pronouns. Right. And I, at some yep. point, if I have a relationship with you, I'm going to pull you aside and say, <laughs> I'm, and this is what I say to people. I am curious how I can support you in learning mm-hmm. my pronouns. And usually that is the sentence they need to hear and they're on it, but they think they've <laughs> done a workaround. I haven't noticed. Right. So I think it's that like all things around kind of difficulty with pronouns. And so that isn't always a, a question. And the other piece of that right now is I think we're in this weird moment in time where a lot of other issues or barriers that trans folks are facing, trans and non-binary folks are facing, aren't getting talked about because the right the only thing people want to talk about are pronouns. I'm like, there's other stuff in my life that I would like you to know that's going on, right? Especially in Texas where we have ridiculous bills being passed. Which is a great lead into the follow-up question, which is what's something you wish people asked you more? Oh, uh, how you doing? Mm. Do you like milk or dark chocolate? Are you cat <laughs> or a dog person? Right. I mean, I think there's so much more to who I am. Mm. Um, right. Like I love that you started off by asking me about three of my identities. Right. And to talk about those, right? Like I have, I often think about this and, you know, I think even with marriage equality, which supposedly solved everything, which it didn't, (laughs) but like, you know, when people find out, uh, and I think this is a place where my age and my sexual orientation collide, but people don't ask me anymore if I'm in a relationship, people aren't curious if I'm dating I don't know if people assume I am or I'm not in a relationship, right? Do you think that's ageism? I do. I think it's, I think it's where, right. I think it's where things meet, you know, for a long time. And, you know, maybe this is shifting, but I don't, I don't think it's shifting as much, but you know, it's like, I'm currently single, but I've been in long-term relationships and, I just found that people weren't very curious about my relationships in the same way and not in the same way that I, you know, you hear people talking about heterosexual relationships and asking, you know, how did you meet? How long have you been together? You know, when's your anniversary? Like all of those kinds of questions. And I just Mm -hmm. find that with kind of queer relationships, that line of questioning doesn't happen. And again, I think when people say, well, I'm married, then maybe they ask, 
But if, if I'm just in a relationship and I, I haven't been legally married, there's a lack of curiosity around things that it's like, because my identity is different and I'm, I'm putting that in quotes, people feel like they don't know what to ask. And the thing is, I want to be asked all the same types of questions you would ask anyone else. And so it isn't just one question, right? Like it's a zillion questions that I wish people would ask me. What's one allyship tip you'd like for everyone listening to consider? For me, recovery is the most important thing. Mm. I think being a good ally is the willingness to be uncomfortable. If you make a mistake, I'm a big believer that I would love for someone I've been trying to start a hashtag. Yes, 60-year-old people can start hashtags. Yes, you can. Yes, all right. Hashtag acknowledge and apologize. And then ask if there's anything needed for repair. And then do better. Mm. Right? And so for me, we're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to make mistakes. But what we do once we do them is, again, for me, is where our greatest learning happens And it's where our greatest healing happens. Visit allyshipisaverb.com for any resources and a full transcript of the episode. You can also follow Gender Sexuality Info on Instagram. Thank you for practicing allyship with me. And remember, sometimes allyship means hashtag acknowledge and apologize.